Nehemiah chapter 3, we've been in a series called Let Us Rise Up and Build, and we've been on a tour. And you're going to see a, a picture behind me on the screen. And if you know anything about this, it's the Japanese art of kintsugi. Kintsugi means golden joinery in our language. And what they do, what, did the, what the Japanese do, and this is an art form, is when they have a piece of pottery that they have made or even some that they have bought and it breaks or it cracks, they repair it. And listen, they do something different than what a lot of us would do. They don't try to conceal the cracks. They don't try to conceal the breaks. They actually fill the cracks with gold dust or resin that is gold colored. They want to illuminate. They want to make the cracks even more obvious. And there's a certain beauty in that, that you can see the damage that once was done on that piece of pottery that now has been joined back together, now has been restored, and, and there's no effort to hide the scars of what had happened. And I bring that to you this morning to get you thinking. Because you're looking at somebody right now who's got cracks in his life, and I'm looking at a whole lot of people that have cracks in their lives. And you know what we tend to do? We try to gloss over them. We try to cover them up. We don't want anybody to see the areas of our wall that's broken down, the gates that are in disrepair. If I can encourage you to learn to do one thing, listen, stop trying to cover up. Just be real. You're not in a group, you're not in a church of finished product people. We are all under repair. And the sooner you learn to just be honest and to stop trying to put this facade with other people that your life is all together when in fact it's not, the sooner you can get to rebuilding your walls. Amen. Golden joinery, what a concept. We're on this tour, our aim is that together, together, transparent people, we might rise up and build these walls around our hearts, wall around this church, and in, in a spiritual wall around the east end of the Lehigh Valley. And for three weeks, we've been on this wall for three weeks, Nehemiah is taking us on tour, and we're looking specifically at the gates of Jerusalem. He shows us 10 of them. There's actually 12. You go to Revelation chapter 21, and you're going to hear in, in, in all, about all 12 of them. But he's going to show us 10, and we're looking at them. And if you remember, we started at the Sheep Gate. This is the starting place. The Sheep Gate, it's the gate through which the Jews would bring the sheep, the lambs, to get them to the temple where they would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. The Sheep Gate, symbolically, is the gate that leads to the cross. It's the gate that leads to the Lamb of God who was put on that cross by His Father to die for the sins of all of us. It's the gate of salvation. It's the gate where the power of the gospel, it's the epicenter of that flow. If your life is in ruin, Christian brother and sister, if your life's a mess, Maybe it's drugs, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your family, maybe it's your job. If your life's a mess and you want to rebuild and God wants you to rebuild, the gate you've got to get back to to start is the sheep gate. It's where the power of the gospel is. There's no other starting point. 
Nehemiah starts at the, at the sheep gate, he ends at the sheep gate, because it's the gate of Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the author and perfecter of our faith. But listen, here's the problem, and everybody look at me, because this is, this is serious. The majority of Christians, you may not like to hear this, never get past the sheep gate. They don't move. And that might be you. I don't know where you're at. If I could, and you would let me, I would climb right straight down in your heart. Roger Bratzman used to make fun of me because I would stand right on the edge of this pew like this when I'm preaching. And he says, man, I'm waiting for the day you fall. He's not a very godly man, and he's sitting right over there. Okay. You know why I stand on the edge of the stage? Because I can't get close enough. Listen, if I had my druthers, I would not be on this stage with you. I'd be in your living room. And I'd be walking you through and asking you, tell me, where are you in this, these gates? Which gate is down in your life? Let's build and let's see what God's going to do. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what gates are down. But I know this. Most Christians don't get past the sheep gate. They don't get to the fish gate. And if you don't get to the fish gate, listen, you don't go to work knowing you're on mission that you're going to be testifying to the, to the power of the gospel in your life. And you don't go to school realizing in college and in high school and in middle school that you're on a mission field and your job, Sheepgate, Sheepgate Christian, is to testify of Jesus Christ. And you don't go to your neighborhood and see the Bible studies. You can do it. You can start a Bible study. You can mentor a person to the Sheepgate. You don't get to the fish gate, you don't become a missionary, you don't become a witness for Jesus Christ. That's a lot of Christians. And they don't get to the old gate, the gate of Yashanah. The gate of Yashanah is where you establish your life on the infallible, trustworthy, eternal word of God. If you don't build your life on this, Christian, you have no power. And you will be like what James says, double-minded. And every time it seems new truth is flowing and new trends are going, you're going to jump ship and go over there and your life's going to vacillate. That's the Christian that doesn't establish themselves on the old gate. And if you don't get to the old gate and realize that everything that God is doing is to bring you closer in relationship to Him, then guess what? As you go downhill and you head to the valley gate, which nobody likes, it's the gate of trials. It's the gate of difficulty. You're going to get to that gate, and when it starts to squeeze you, that's what pressure does. That's what difficulty does. It begins to squeeze your heart, and flowing out of that heart are the impurities and the things that God is saying, it's time to get out. If you get to that valley gate and you're not established at the old gate, you're going to see a God that you don't trust, a God that's mean in your life. And if you don't see... The good, merciful hand of God squeezing you at the valley gate. Listen, he's the one that's brought you there. He wants you to pass the test of faith. Your enemy wants you to fail the test of faith. But if you don't see the good, enduring, merciful hand of God at the valley gate, then you're not going to be able to get to the dung gate and take those impurities and throw them through that gate and lock the gate behind you with its bars and bolts. You're going to bring shame. You're going to bring guilt. And you're going to find that sin walking right behind you back home. 
And if you don't see the seriousness of sin and the gift that we have as Christians of confessing it, acknowledging it, and casting it to the valley of Hinnom down below where the mercies of God extinguish it and burn it, if you don't see the value of the dung gate in your life, then you're not going to flee to the fountain gate, which is the fullness of the Spirit of God. Listen, the only reason, please believe me, the only reason the Spirit of God is not fully in us is because of sin and unbelief. That's it. Listen, the Spirit of God is like a racehorse. He cannot, he cannot wait for the gates to drop. He wants to race into our hearts. He wants to fill us and produce fruit that's going to bring glory to God the Father. It's sin, it's rubbish, it's refuge, it's impurity that keeps Him from filling our hearts. That's what the valley gate is designed to show. That's what the dung gate is designed to get rid of. But a lot of Christians don't make it out of the sheep gate. You might be saved, but you're not on mission. And you're not established on the Word of God. And you're not seeing valley gates as gifts. And you're not flowing through the dung gate to be purified. And you're not fleeing to the fountain gate to be filled. And that might be you, brother and sister. And that's what this sermon series is designed to do. Get you moving and repair the gates. Because we have enemies. You know that, right? I don't want to elaborate this. You know me. If you know me, you know I'm not a sensational pastor. But i got to tell you, I've got to warn you. You've got three enemies that hate your guts, want to destroy your faith. And they never, listen, they never take a day off. There's no weekend for Satan. And there's no weekend, weekend in this God-opposing world system, and your flesh never takes vacation. They always want to destroy your faith. They are at work the moment you get up. Listen, they're at work while you're asleep. You've got to get on your bed and meditate on the Word of God and let the truth fill your mind. Because they don't even take the night off. And if you know anything about ancient warfare, then know this. The walls were never the attack points of the enemy armies. You don't try to rip the wall down. You're not going to succeed. If there's a platoon of soldiers attacking your wall, it's only a diversion because the rest of them are attacking your gates. They're always the most vulnerable part of the wall. This is why Nehemiah is so specific with these ten gates and why we've got to repair these gates. If one of your gates is down, that's where your enemies are going to pour in. Now go back. You've been to the sheep gate? You've got the blood of Christ covering you. If you've not been in the sheep gate, you don't have a wall of salvation around you. Your wall is not going to be secure. If you've been to the sheep gate, you've got a wall. But if you're not to the fish gate, you don't have a witness. If you've not established on the old gate, your life is going to be weak and shifting with where the world goes. And if you hate the valley gate and don't see it as a gift, you're going to see trials as evidence of God's Villainy and evil. And if you don't get to the dung gate, you're going to bottle sin up and it is cancerous to your soul. And if you don't get to the fountain gate, you'll never have the power of God in your life. Which gates are down? We've only covered six. We've got four more to go. We're going to hit one today. Which of your gates is down? And where do you need to repair? As we get ready to move to the seventh gate on this tour, let's pause. I want you to meet two of the workers. I'm going to introduce you to three work crews this morning. It's going to take some of our time, 
but two of them right at the beginning. I want you to look at verse 20, and let's look at it together, and I want you to see what it says. I'm going to read it from the ESV, the English Standard Version. I'm going to reread it from the NASB because I like it a little bit better. Here's what it says. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. The reason I'm going to reread this from the NASB, and I think you'll see it behind me, is because the ESV inexplicably leaves a word out that changes the whole focus of the verse. Here's what it says in the NASB. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, zealously, there's the missing word, repaired another section. And you want to know that the word zealously has a phenomenal meaning in the Hebrew language. It's a verb, an action word, and it means to glow, it means to uh, blaze, it means to burn. Now the whole verse changes when you bring in that Hebrew verb. Baruch burned with a passion. He was glowing with a fervor, an ardent desire to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. So here's Nehemiah. Now you've got to see this. Here's Nehemiah. We're all on this guided tour, all of us. And he's our tour guide. And he's walking us close to the seventh gate called the water gate. But on the way there, he says, hey, I want you to stop and I want you to see somebody. Look up on the wall. He's so zealous for the word of God, for, the, for rebuilding the, the kingdom of God that he won't even come down and meet us. But listen, he's glowing. He's blazing with a passion for God. That's Baruch. He would never, Baruch would never have shared what the British humorist Jerome K. Jerome once wrote. I like work. It fascinates me. I can sit and look at it for hours. That wouldn't be Baruch. It might be some of us. In fact, let me get you thinking a little bit more. Is that you when it comes to the kingdom of God? Now, if you get to a point, now, I, let's be honest, this is kind of fun. This is sort of my, um, you know, informal polling. How many of you ever in any sermon, not just these, have gotten a little defensive during the sermon? Honestly, come on. Some of you are honest, the rest of you are lying. Here's the interesting thing. Here, let, me, let me teach you what you do when you get defensive, because I've gotten defensive in the midst of a sermon. Your first thing is, God, are you speaking to me? Because one of my enemies is my flesh, and he doesn't, that flesh doesn't like what you're saying through that pastor. It might be that the pastor's not preaching well, and it might be that he's saying things that are unnecessarily combative. But it might also be that I'm hearing something that my flesh is recoiling from, and it might be the precise point in my life that I've got to repair. So if I'm saying something to you this morning that you're getting a little defensive at, maybe it's the weight of the burden of the Word of God that's settling deeply on your soul, and your soul's creaking in defiance a little bit. Do you work hard? For the kingdom of God. Are you a Baruch that's blazing, glowing, burning with a desire not for anything in this world, but for eternity and says, my job is to build the kingdom right where God has planted me. And I will build it with all my might.
See, Baruch lived Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. And this is amazing. Now listen, you've got to realize how amazing this is because just flip your page if you need to in your Bible to chapter 4, verse 6. Look what it says is that all the people, all the people of Jerusalem had a mind to work. So there's a whole congregation. Let's bring it home. All of Cornerstone's got a mind to work. Let's say that's us. And even despite the whole congregation having a mind to work all in one accord, thinking the same thing, that I'm in this church to build the kingdom of God right where he's planted me on my section of the wall, above all the congregation, here's Baruch, blazing and burning. All the people have a mind to work, but here's Baruch, Baruch standing out because he's glowing with a passion. You want to hear some truth that's hard to swallow from me? Likely you. If you aren't working, Christian brother and sister, for the kingdom of God with all your might, you are passively aiding the enemy. Well, Tim, I think you're overstating. Let me read to you from Proverbs 18. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys? You've been coming to this church, let's say, for a year. And you've been sitting underneath these sermons that are sometimes not very comfortable for me either. I'm the one looking in the mirror of the word all week on these. It gets a little bit restless at times. And you're saying, you know, every week I really should get involved. I really should lead a Bible study at work. I really should go on that mission trip. You know, that neighbor's face just keeps popping in my mind. I know I've got, to pre I've got to preach. I've got to testify to the gospel in that person's life. I'll do it next week, and next week never comes. Do you understand, friends, that you are partnering with what wants to destroy the kingdom? Are you a Baruch? There are Baruchs among us. You know, I think of a Baruch, and I want to be careful with this, because if Nehemiah can honor men and women on the wall, then we should do that, right? Because a Baruch would never have a cell phone go off in the middle of my sermons. It's just never going to happen. I can promise you that. Never happened. There will come a day when everybody remembers to turn that off. Likely not this side of eternity. So for me, if your cell phone just went off, it's all part of the fun. I don't mind. Just try to turn them off because I can't stand you at this moment. Um, just try to be honest. The Baruchs are in this church. I had to remember where I was. And I want to tell you about some Baruchs. I want to honor some. And listen, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. If I'm not mentioning your name, it's not because I think lowly of you. Your time's likely coming where I will honor you. I think of Sarah Pensack. Sarah, wave your hand. I know you're in here. Paul Barry obviously wants me to mention him. I'll do that later. Where's Sarah? Sarah, where is your hand? You know what Sarah does? She leads a team at Riverside every single week. Do you realize that Riverside Ministry started in 2007 in April, has never taken a Monday off, holidays included since? That's phenomenal. She blazes 
and she burns, and I know she's not comfortable with what I'm doing. She has a whole team of women, Roseanne, Marie. I mean, they're just Gloria. They are a whole team of women, and Mike Shasha, often, Tony and Bruce Galetta. They are Baruchs. They are blazing. Your eye gravitates to them. You never have to come to them and say, listen, I think God's given you a gift. If you've been in the sheep gate, he planted a gift or even maybe more than one inside your heart, inside your life in order for you to do everything he's asked you to do, but you're not using your gifts. You don't need to say that to Baruch's. They understand that this life is short, that nothing matters that doesn't have eternal significance. It doesn't matter how much money you make and how high you get in your jobs. Can I use the money, use my position for the kingdom of God's work? That's what matters. That's a Baruch. They blaze. They burn. But there's another person you've got to meet because Nehemiah wants you to meet him. And it's in the very next verse. Look at Merimot. You'll know Merimot because you've already met him. Merimot was introduced, I think, between the fish gate and the old gate. He was repairing a section there. And here, listen, look at me. Merimotes do this. They get done with their ministry assignment, and there's no option of taking a break. There's no option of sitting on the sidelines. They're telling their coach, Jesus, and the assistant coaches, the pastors and elders, where can I get back in the game? Where is more wall that I could build? And all of a sudden, we see Merimot on his second section of the wall. That's amazing. You never need to get marimotes working in the church. We have a guy in our church who works in a government position who started a Bible study. And he started putting signs up for directions of where the Bible study was going to take place. And it doesn't, long, it doesn't, it doesn't take long for our enemies, this God-opposing world system, the flesh and Satan, to to recoil, and the sand ballots and Tobias and, and all the enemies we have to come rearing right back at you. And they said, you can't do that. This is a government building. You're not allowed to, to push and proselytize your religion. He says, well, it's on my lunch break. This is technically a free time. He says, you can't do it. If you want to do that, you've got to leave the building. Listen, that's the pushback when you're a marimote. When you're a marimote and you're working on the wall, you're going to never take a break because it's not in your nature. It's not an option to serve in the kingdom. You're going to work. So you've got a Bob and Emily Seymour who are sitting over here. They're part of our missionaries that we support. Bob lived on the wall, building it in construction. God took him to a new section of the wall with chosen people ministry. Bob, you can... You can share this when people ask you, but I can guarantee you Bob's come pretty close to quitting many, many times. You always do when you're on the wall because your enemy will discourage you over and over. But that's a marimote. He won't quit. He didn't quit. He's going to live his life this side of eternity, living for the eternity that's on the other side of death. That's a marimote. Are you working on the wall? Friends, are you a Baruch blazing or are you a Marimote that says it's not an option to sit in the pew and do nothing? I've got to get in, in, in the game. You know, last night after the sermon was done at Saturday evening church, this was so awesome. I had two people come up to me and they said, listen, I don't know what to do, but I know I need to do something. I want to serve. I want to be a Marimote or a Baruch. Where do I go? 
You know, that's Nehemiah's job, by the way. You know, Nehemiah never laid one tool to the wall. You know that? You look through Nehemiah 3. Don't be fooled. There's three Nehemiahs in this book. Only one of them is the man that we're studying. And he never lifted a tool for the work. His job was to manage and supervise and motivate and protect and teach and galvanize and cast vision. That was his job. And he comes alongside the Baruchs and says, I want to honor them to the tour people. And I want to honor Merimotes because they deserve honor and they stand out for the rest of us as examples. Let's live like a Baruch. Let's live like a Merimo and serve. Do you know we have somebody in this church, we have actually a few people in this church that are taking regular trips to the Congo? Do you know why they're taking regular trips to the Congo? Because there is such a degree of suffering. And if these women who are being raped and these children whose fathers are being killed are to rebuild their lives, it's got to be here in the Word of God. There is no other way to do it. Relief organizations aren't going to do it. It's the word of God. This gentleman, Bob Briggs, Lee Manus, American Bible Society, and others, they're galvanized with a vision in the Congo part of Africa to bring the word of God. You know what? That's one of the people, one of the groups we're praying about whether we should multi-site with. These are Baruchs, these are Merimotes. We've got a lot of them in our church, but listen, there's a lot of people that are the nobles of Tekoa. They're not doing a thing. And if that's you, brother and sister, listen, let your soul creak with the weight of the word. It's going to settle. If that's you, you will not ever hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You're not going to hear those words. And I can tell you from my pastoral heart, I'm in your living room now. I'm right there sitting on the couch with you. I will tell you my two greatest fears as a pastor. Number one, that you will stand before Jesus Christ. And hear the most awful words ears can hear. Get away from me. I never knew you. Depart. My second greatest fear is this, that you won't hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You may have been in the sheep gate, but you're not on the fish gate. And you're not established at the old gate. And you're not seeing the gift of the valley gate. And you're not using the dung gate. And you're not being filled at the fountain gate. That's my greatest fear. Listen, let's be Baruchs and Marimotes. And I'm not a pastor that says you've got to do, do that in this church. Be where God has planted you. And serve where you live. That's how you build the wall. Nehemiah has introduced us to these work crews. Look at the gate that he is walking us toward. It's the seventh gate. It's called the water gate. Verse 25. After him, Padiah, the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point out opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. Let me introduce you to another work crew, and this is the third and final. And you just read their names, the temple servants living on a fell. If you have the King James Version or the New King James Version, you're reading the Nethanims. They're called the Nethanims. And I want to give you a little bit of a history of the Nethanims because they're outstanding people. So listen to me. This is now going to enlarge your understanding of how awesome it is in this phrase, the temple servants living on Ophel. Ophel means hilly mound. It was a hill just south of the temple. It's where the Nethanim lived. Here's the Nethanim. You ready? 
They were foreigners. They were Gentiles. They were not Jews. They were slaves. They were captured in war, and they were made to serve the priests as their assistants. And here's the custom of slavery in Israel. It's not like what you know about slavery in Africa. It's totally different. It's saturated with the mercy and the goodness and the welfare of God and his people. Slavery in Israel always had an end point, And there were rules how you had to treat your slaves. And at the end point, after their slavery period was done, the slave had an option, had a choice to make. You could either go free and you had the right of the people of God, or you could become a bond slave to your master. And a bond slave was somebody that said, I love my master so much that I want to serve my master with the rest of my life. And the master would take their slave, who is now becoming a bond slave, and put their earlobe up against the, the post in their home and drive in all through it, puncturing a hole and put a ring in it. That was the symbol that I'm now a bond slave, a willing Free servant of my master. These are the Nethanims. See, when their slavery period was done, they said, we want to serve in the temple. We want to serve with the priests. Give us a job and we will do it. Here's their job. You ready? Remember the fountain gate? That's living water flowing in the pool of Siloam near the fountain gate. And the Nethanim would go through the water gate with their jars and they would go to the pool of Siloam of living water and they would draw that water and they would carry that water and they would bring it back to the temple because everything in the temple had to be purified. If you're a priest in the time of Jesus, there were over 24,000 priests. They all took their turn. They all had a rotation. They were all on a schedule. That's why in the story of the Good Samaritan, there was a priest going back home to his country. He had just served his two weeks. And before a priest can serve, before a priest can implement and orchestrate and ordain the services of the temple, they had to be ritually purified. And they would take the water from these jars and they would take a ritual bath because they could not oversee the services defiled. And the utensils used in the services of the worship of God in the temple all had to be immersed into this ritual bath in order to be purified for God. The job of the temple servants who lived on Ophel, the job of the Nethanim were to draw, was to draw the water in these jars so that the priests could be pure. And you probably don't recognize it yet, but I'm starting to inch you towards why this gate is so symbolic. Friends, water for drinking. Listen, we sang about it this morning. Cheryl read about it from Isaiah 43. Water for drinking symbolizes the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit all through the Scripture. You heard that, right? Water for drinking symbolizes the, the power of the Holy Spirit that gives life. But listen, water for washing in the Bible symbolizes something different. It symbolizes the cleaning power of the Word of God. That's the water gate. It's the gate of the Word of God. 
At the water gate, the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and He fills our hearts with it and our minds with it. It begins to purify our thoughts, begins to sanctify our desires. How can a young man keep his way pure, David says? Well, here's how. By guarding it with your Word. This is water gate language. The Apostle Paul prayed that the church would be pure. Christ loved the church, he says in Ephesians 5, and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her. How? This is Watergate language. By the washing of water with the Word. It's the Word of God that is the Watergate. And its job as the Spirit of God fills our minds and our hearts with the Word of God is to purify us and give us right and holy desires. See, it's at the old gate, remember the third gate, it's at the old gate that we were established on the infallible eternal word of God. But it's at the water gate where that same word works every single day in cleaning our minds, sanctifying us, making us holy, transforming our lives. It's when our minds are renewed at this gate that the spirit of God flows God's truth into our hearts as we meditate on the living word of God. Now listen, let me take a time out. There's lots more on this gate. Here's your job. You can't be in neutral right now. Your minds have got to be working. You've got to be interacting with what God is speaking into your heart and saying. What's this gate look like in your life? More on that in a minute. Let me back up for just a moment and let us see how this gate should be operating. You see, it's at the valley gate. Remember that valley gate that none of us like? It's painful. I don't care if you've been in the valley gate for 15 same reasons. It hurts every time. You'll never grow comfortable at the valley gate. If you were comfortable, it wouldn't squeeze your heart. The valley gate is hard. It's not fun. But it's at the valley gate where God in His mercy is squeezing our hearts, forcing those sins and that unbelief and those impurities to the surface. And just like metalworking, the dross that comes to the top of the liquid metal, you screen it off and you acknowledge it and you cast it with all your soul's might with the Spirit of God rearing your arm back, casting it through the dung gate and locking the bars behind you. It will never be charged to your account again. You're clean. And immediately you get to the fountain gate where fountain gate language of 1 John 1, 9 is ringing in your soul if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, this is what the fountain gate is doing. And the way the fountain gate works is the Spirit of God is filling you up. It's going to be by filling you up with His Word at the water gate. If you, get it to the, if you get to the fountain gate, but you don't move to the water gate, you're not going to be filled with the Word of God, and your revival will be short-lived at best. Dwight Moody, years ago, once held up a glass in a congregation. I love this illustration. He held up a glass and he asked, how can I get the air out of this glass? And somebody from the pews shouted up, shouted up there, suck it out with a pump. 
And Moody responded, well, that would create a vacuum and eventually shatter the glass. And numerous other suggestions were given. And, and Moody finally just smiled and he held the empty glass and he took a pitcher of water and he began to pour it until it was completely filled to the very rim of that glass. And he says to the congregation, now all the air is removed. And then he explained that victory in the Christian life, it's not accomplished by trying to suck a sin out of your soul here and there. It's accomplished by being filled with the Spirit of God. That's fountain gate language. And if you want to be filled with the Spirit of God, listen, he has only one substance that he's going to fill you with, and it's the Word of God, and you get it at the water gate. If the water gate is alive and active in your life, you are deeply, daily meditating and memorizing and loving the word of God. It is sweeter than honey to your soul. That's how you know if the water gate's alive. And as you meditate and as you read and as you study, listen, here's what God's doing. Here's how you open the water gate. As simple as this. And saying, God, you want to speak to me today. You got something for my soul's nourishment that I'm going to need to get through this day and bring honor and glory to you. What is it? And you begin reading it as if God's got his lips to your ear and speaking it directly. Listen, if all you're getting... Is my sermons or your favorite radio sermons once a week? Listen, your soul is seriously malnourished. Why would you want the Word of God only third person? At best, He's speaking through me, through the Word, into you. Why not get it first person? God, what do you want to show me today and speak to me today from your Word? You get in it every morning. And as you are, you're meditating on a day and night. Listen, you're by streams of water. You know what that means? Let's bring it back to the Nethanim. You're drawing water every day into your soul, and it is purifying your heart. You're getting new desires. You no longer desire what you used to like. You're delighting yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart, and that's a favorite of prosperity preachers. Hey, listen, just love the Word of God. Just love God, and He's going to give you whatever you want. That's not what that means. It means the more you delight in the Lord, He's going to shift your desires and pour His desires into you. So what you want is going to be what He wants. And listen, when you want what God wants, God's ready to give it. That's always the way it works. And that's Watergate language. Already you are clean, Jesus said, because of the word that I have spoken to you. And again, later to his disciples, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You want a clean heart and a clean mind? It's at the water gate. And it's the word of God. By the way, Nehemiah chapter 8 is amazing. I cannot wait to get it. Can I give you a little preview? Here's your movie trailer of a movie that's coming up in about three months. Ezra and Nehemiah have gathered the people, calls them a congregation, and a revival is about to break out. Guess what? They're right in front of the water gate. And here's what Ezra's doing. He's teaching them. He's reading them the word of God and explaining it to them because that's what you do at the water gate. It is the gate of the word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect. 
reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Look at verse 26. Notice something that is unbelievably important. Because I know there's got to be skeptics here. Here's a skeptic. Tim, you obviously don't know that this, these aren't really the original manuscripts. These are full of errors and contradiction. See, men have translated this and there's all kinds of mistakes in it. It's not a science book. That's why the sun rises. I thought the sun is fixed. Listen, for all the skeptics and they're all around us, I want you to hear something. The wall to the water gate was repaired, verse 26, but there's never ever a mention that the gate itself was repaired. It doesn't need repair. The water gate of the word of God is indestructible. It will never fall into disrepair. It is inviolable. It will never perish. Regardless of all the attacks that are mounted and the attacks that are heaped, the grass withers and the flower falls. But Peter says the word of the Lord remains forever. This is an indestructible gate. The problem is not that the gate is in disrepair in our lives. Listen, the problem is dust covers it. The problem is it's fallen into neglect. It will work the moment you open it, but you've skirted it, gone from the fountain gate to the east gate, thinking you can skip the water gate and your soul is drying up in you. There's not been anything more than the person of Christ that Jesus has tried to attack. Nothing except the word of God. Look what he did. The very first conversation of Satan, Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? That is a flat out attack on the water gate. And if you're letting Satan have his way, he will pour through the water gate and convince you that this is not trustworthy. I know Pastor Tim says it's the living word of God, that it is alive, that it can separate all the way down to the very thoughts and attitudes of your heart and divide them. I know he says that, but for me, I get in here and it's static, it's sterile, nothing happens. That's what Satan's going to do as he pours through this gate. Why even bother? But God's word is absolutely indestructible, Christian brother and sister, forever, O Lord, Psalm 119. Your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Listen, listen to the power of this gate. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If you want the fountain gate, the spirit of the fountain gate to fill you with his fullness, there's only one thing he's pouring in and that's his word. And as he pours in his word at the water gate, it's going to be scrubbing your soul free of old desires and giving you new desires, new thoughts that you could take captive the old thoughts and have truth living and guarding your life rather than lies. Got an email this morning from a friend of our in this church, a brother in this church, who says, you know what, I give up. I give up. I cannot stop looking at pornography. And I quit. Maybe there's somebody else 
or somewhere else that I can go. That is the enemy pouring through the water gate. And my response, I love you, brother. Don't give up. God knows what he's doing. Get the word of God flowing back in your heart. And take captive the lies and watch your enemy run. That's a Nehemiah. If you want to be a Nehemiah, you want to bring the consolation of Yahweh to other people, bring people to the water gate and bring the word of God to bear. It's the only power to rebuild lives. Your philosophies won't do it. And the latest book from Hackman's and CBD really can help bring people to the water gate, but they don't have the transforming power. Nothing written by man can change the soul. It's only God's word. And while our enemies cannot destroy this gate, listen, they can influence us to let it lapse so that when you finally open it up, something's creaking inside of your mind. The hinges are rusting. Power through it. Let the lubrication of the Spirit of God oil those hinges. Get back into the Word of God every single day. So let me ask you, as we kind of wind down towards the end of this message, let me ask you this. Have you noticed you don't have any power in your spiritual life? You can't seem to defeat that sin. You're constantly discouraged. Friend today said, I have been living in depression for year, years and years. Do you have power in your life and boldness to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ? And are you seeing the gifts of God exercising through you to unimaginably exciting degrees? And are you seeing endurance and blazing Baruchs and Marimotes in your life? Are you seeing this being you that you cannot stand not working in the kingdom of God? And you want to blaze because when people see you working on the wall, they're seeing a picture of Jesus Christ. Nobody worked on the wall more than Jesus. He built it and he died for it. If you don't have power in your life, likely the water gate is in neglect. And only you can answer it. What are you going to do tomorrow morning? You're going to get back in the Word of God and let His lips blow truth into your ears so that your soul could be filled in the air of this world that is so stale and sterile, bleeds out of your soul. That's the power of the water gate. The word of God abides in you, John said, and you have overcome the evil one. If you cannot overcome the evil one, likely it's because you're not at the water gate and the word of God is not in you. So let me ask if I can, are you among the Nethanims? Are you drawing water through the water gate, the water of the word of God, so that it deeply purifies your mind and your heart. Every day, this is all you live for. You live, you cannot wait to get into the Word of God. It is exciting because you know this thing here is alive. It's the only book in existence that is. It's alive with the power of God to make you equipped for everything that God's ever going to ask you to do. It's the water gate. Let me close with this. There was a man who said to a preacher that he had received no inspiration from the Bible regarding, or despite the fact that he'd gone through it several times. It's not done anything for me. 
And the preacher said back to him, listen, let the word of God go through you once. Let it go through you once, and then you're going to tell a different story. If you're going through the Bible but not letting the Bible go through you, you're probably likely not going to see a difference. Let the Bible, let the water of God's word flow through your heart and your mind and let it scrub away the thoughts of this world that oppose them. And you will have a different story to tell. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, Father, for the Watergate. Thank you for the Baruchs among this church and the Marimotes. Thank you for the Nethanim. Lord, thank you for the book of Nehemiah. Thank you for the Watergate. I love your word. I have every bit of confidence in your word. There is nothing I doubt. It's hard. It's heavy. Sometimes and oftentimes you say things to me that I don't like, but I don't doubt it. I love the water gate. Lord, may we be a people who love the water gate. We'll open up this word and let your lips speak straight into our souls and let your spirit, the fountain gate, stream waters of purity into our hearts. Let us be the people of your word. For anybody that's struggling, and I'm sure there's many, with opening up your word regularly and studying and memorizing and meditating on it, Lord, give them the absolute urgency that there is no other way for them to be transformed. It happens at the water gate, at the word of God. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name.